grab a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 12. We've been looking at the other Christmas story that's in the New Testament, not the one that's found in Matthew and Luke or the prologue of the Gospel of John. But we're looking at this uh, cosmic Christmas of what happens behind the scenes, what happens really from the uh, moment of history that God has prepared to send Jesus to come to us. In the Christmas carol, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. O tidings of comfort and joy. We are well aware that when Jesus was born, it was born into a spiritual struggle, into this cosmic conflict between good and evil. Christmas is nice and it's warm and it's cozy, but we also have to remember that behind Christmas, what we, um, excuse me, what we often see is that there's this cosmic struggle going on. Let's look at Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. We looked last week that this is a nation of Israel, ready to bring forth the Messiah. She was pregnant, cried out in pain. And as she was about to give birth, there was another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so what? It might devour her child the moment he was born. Right away, the Christmas story is entering into conflict. It's this cosmic struggle. And as Jesus was born, we see behind the scenes that the red dragon wanted to have his way. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God in his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Last week we looked at the fact that this woman now is the church and this early church was persecuted and struggled by against the Roman Empire and went into the wilderness. In our lives, we are in exile here on planet Earth. The Bible tells us we are foreigners and strangers as we are walking through and we are still in exile. Even though our relationship with God has, has been mended and restored, we still know that this isn't quite how it should be. We're here. We know that we want to be somewhere else and ultimately it's our heavenly home. And so John reminds us that there is this struggle that is in our lives. This other sign, this great red dragon. In classical Greek, it was a mythical monster with powers of cleverness and, and strength. The Hebrew uh, term translated dragon could also be translated as a sea monster. And so unmistakably, the red dragon is a symbol of the devil. Satan is the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, uh, tempting Adam and Eve. And his dragon likeness here and in the Old Testament symbolizes his beastliness and his seductiveness. And so the dragon drew his tail and a third of the stars and cast him to earth. And we know that behind the scenes, that we not only struggle here on planet Earth, but there was also a cosmic struggle in the invisible created world. Jude chapter 6 says, The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And Second Peter reminds us that God did not spare angels when they sinned. These rebelled to their own choice and did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling. And so we know that behind the scenes there is a cosmic struggle, and that cosmic struggle then spills into our world where we live. 
What does the Apostle Paul tell us? Our struggle is not with what? Flesh and blood, but with what? The rulers and the principalities and those behind the scenes thing. And so behind this visible created world, there's an invisible created world. And that's what Christmas is. It's the Logos, Jesus, John chapter 1, the invisible God took on flesh and blood so that we can now see him in the person of Jesus. So coming from the invisible realm into the visible realm. And so we have now this invisible struggle, but we all are aware too much that we are caught up in this struggle. Have you felt the struggle this morning already? Maybe with something as simple as, man, there's frost on my car windows. Lord, do I have to go to church? Maybe I'll just stay in bed. Do you ever notice how warm the bed feels on Sunday mornings? I mean, it, like, if you have to go somewhere, you don't, get, you don't hardly sleep all night, you're checking the clock every hour, and you are out of that bed. But come Sunday mornings, like, oh, Lord, it is so nice and warm. So we're in this struggle with what? The flesh and the world. And ultimately, we know we have an adversary in Satan. He first appeared in the Garden of Eden. And the world has been immersed in this spiritual battle. Remember the spiritual invisible battle. Now there's this spiritual battle on planet Earth. Genesis 3, 1 to 4 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And then she added on some things. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. And so from the beginning, this conflict has been between the truth of God's word and the lies of the enemy, the truth of what God tells us and the deception that we believe. And so we know from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, there was a promise that what? They, the, your, the seed of the woman would what? Crush his head. He would strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And so all the way from the beginning of Genesis, we see God's plan. Galatians 4, 4 reminds us that when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. That's Revelation chapter 12. When the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. The nation of Israel was there. They were chosen for preparation to bring forth the Messiah. They brought forth the Messiah. So God's culmination of history happens when Jesus came in the flesh. As the time neared for God's son to be born, the, the, the devil was positioning himself to devour this male child. And so what did Satan do? He found accomplices in, in, the, in wickedness of mankind. And what ultimately happened to this son? He was crucified and buried. And three days later, what happened? He rose again. God's ultimate plans always prevail. What does Revelation 12 tell us? Revelation 12 tells us what? We have an enemy. He is deceptive, he is crafty, he is dangerous. And that's why the Bible portrays him as a red, lion, a red dragon or a roaring lion seeking to devour. This is why Jesus calls Satan a liar and a murderer. That's why the author of Hebrews talks about how apart from Christ, Satan holds us in the power of death. You know why people are so afraid of death? Because they haven't been released from the fear that Satan has put into them that, that you need to fear death. And that's why Paul called Satan the God of this world. He is the ultimate thief looking to steal, to kill, and destroy. He wages war. And though he is defeated, we are born into this war. 
And we are also born again into this war until Jesus comes. See, what does this have to do with Christmas? <laughs> Look on your notes. 1 John 3.8 says this. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. What's that next phrase? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. There it is. The reason Jesus appeared in the flesh, came to earth, was to do what? To destroy the devil's work. This is what we celebrate with Christmas. This is the cosmic struggle that sometimes we forget when we look at this little baby in the manger. But the reason he came was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus entered into this spiritual conflict, and Christmas was a piece of this spiritual conflict. And Revelation 12 pulls behind the curtains, and we see what's really going on. You know, when Jesus was born, when Jesus came into the world, not everyone was happy. We're going to look at that in a few minutes, but this was a cosmic struggle. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says out to 72, and he gives them authority. And when the 72 returned with joy, they said this, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And here's what Jesus said. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus says this, yes, I've come to do this spiritual conflict and I've come to enter into this spiritual battle. But here's what I want you to rejoice about. If you are born again, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, if you have received the gift of salvation, I want you to rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. They're recorded in heaven. So what does that mean for us? That means for us, when we are in this spiritual struggle, when we are in this spiritual battle, when my name is written in heaven, I don't have to fear. When, when, listen, in your life, when fear is eliminated, you are invincible. We just are. How many things do we not do because of fear? How many people do we not have hard conversations with because of fear? How often do we not share our faith because of fear? How often are we worried that the world is going to fall apart because of fear? And you eliminate fear. And what happens? We are unconquerable. That's what Jesus came to do. He comes into this world to what? Eliminate fear. So Jesus coming. Listen, Christmas changes the story. It strikes a major shift in the Bible's storyline. In the Old Testament, we find stories where Satan comes into the presence of God with the angels, and we see him accused. In the classic case is the book of Job. In the opening of Job, Satan comes, and he comes in, and what does he say? Lord, have you considered your servant Job? And the Lord says to him, you can uh, have him, but don't touch him. Right. So uh, all these things happen in Job's life. And so he comes, and he accuses and Zechariah, with Joshua the high priest, Satan comes and he accuses. When Jesus, when these 72 followers went out into the towns and villages and they returned, Jesus says what? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You know what? His doom is sure. It is certain. And I saw him fall. And what that means is I have come to conquer him. The reason I have been born is to come into this world to do battle with him so that you can be successful in your life as you do battle with him. Jesus came to, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so in Revelation 12, verse 7, this happened at some point in Jesus' life and ministry. 
And the victory flag, listen, the victory flag was raised during his death, his burial, and his resurrection. See, the enemies of Jesus, of God, thought they had conquered. You know, on Good Friday, when Jesus was laid in the tomb, God's enemies were gloating. We did it. We have devoured the man-child. Now listen, Satan and his minions are not omnipresent. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. All They don't know everything. And so while they're gloating, what happens? The clock is ticking. Tick, 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 tick. Friday goes into Saturday. And Saturday comes into dawn on Sunday morning. And what happens? The stone is rolled away and Jesus is risen and he has the ultimate victory. So he raised the victory flag. So he came and he accomplished what he came to do. In fact, in John chapter 12, Jesus said this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus says in my death and resurrection, the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. Even though he has influence and even though he is has a, a sphere of influence, I have broken the power that he has over your life. And so we see this in Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse 12. We see this, uh, we'll start in verse 10. Uh, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been what? He has been hurled down. Listen, you are fighting a defeated enemy. Your spiritual struggle in your life, Jesus came to what? The reason he came was to destroy the devil's work. And so we see that in this cosmic thing that happens in the background. And so unsuccessful in devouring this man-child, what does the devil try to do? He tries to conquer the church and take it over. So he pursues this woman. It's this, it's this church. And so Satan, we see, has started to attack the followers of Jesus. But he couldn't take over the Jesus because Jesus was ascended back to heaven. And so now he continues to wage war against the bride of Christ. In fact, in chapter 13 and verse 7, it says he makes war on the saints. But God's people are to endure. We are to be faithful to Jesus we will have the blessing of rest even after death. I want to give you just a couple practical things this morning in order to continue, in order to have victory in this struggle that we find ourselves in. Because, listen, don't we know that it's all too real? I mean, don't you know that the struggle is all too real in your life? The, the, we know that there's a struggle between what we should do and what we want to do and the, things that, the, the bad decisions that we make and the ways that we fail and the ways that we fall. So we need to learn something about his schemes, because the Bible says we're not to be unaware of his schemes. And so the first thing that we understand is there's animosity. Verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child when he was born. There is, there's animosity from the beginning. As soon as Jesus was born, there is a struggle. Listen, the, the, the devil has animosity towards the things of God. He wants to destroy God's image in you. He wants to mar God's image in you. He does not like you. But what he says is, I know what's best for you. He tempted Eve. And what did he say? Surely God knows when you eat from the uh, tree, you're going to be like him. He whispers those things. And we think, you know what? He might be right. He might have the best for me. And so I sin and I fail and I falter. And then where is he to pick up the pieces? He's gone. He's just gone. 
There's animosity when he sees in you. If you are, you are, um, there are no dogs in here this morning. Sometimes there is dogs in our assembly, but not this morning. So you are a human being. You are created in God's image and Satan hates that in you. That you remind him of God in whose image you are created in. What's the other thing that he does? He, he leads astray. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the what? The whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels is with him. What does that mean when he says he leads astray? It means here's the truth and I'm going to pull you from the truth. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. God said to Adam and Eve, you are not to eat from this one tree. And so what does he do? He led them astray and he got them to eat from the tree. He pulled them from the truth. And that's what God wants to do with us or Satan wants to do with us. He wants to pull us from the truth. When we make mistakes, don't we ultimately know that what we're doing is wrong? Like think about the mistakes that we make. We don't at the end say, oh no, I didn't know that was wrong. Isn't there something in us before we do it that we know it's wrong? And that's where the struggle is. That we know if I open my mouth in anger right now, it's probably not the right thing to do, but I've been hurt and I've been treated unfairly and I'm going to get you. And while I'm doing it, I know I'm doing something wrong. We just we just do. What is that? We have been led. We have been pulled from the truth. We have been led. What? Led astray. Satan wants to do that. God has given us the truth. And next week we're going to talk about how to fight this battle. But God's given us the truth in order for us to flourish in our lives. God is not a cosmic killjoy that he doesn't just want us not to have any fun. He created us and he says, here's my plans and purposes for your life. And if you fulfill this plan and purpose, you will be flourishing in your life. You know what that means? That means when I put my head on my pillow at night, I don't have to have regret or shame or always looking over my shoulder and wondering who's going to find out, who's going to know. I wonder if anybody's going to discover this, right? I don't have to. That's what God doesn't want us to have any of that, but Satan wants us to have all of that. He only comes to what? Kill, steal, destroy. He wants us to have shame. He wants us to have regret. He wants us to have guilt. But the third tactic is he accuses. Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. You have an enemy who is accusing you. And we see that Jesus said that we will be accused by other people. And Jesus was accused by other people. In Luke chapter 6, verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Here is the perfect Lamb of God, the Son of Man who never sinned. And people were looking for a way to find fault with him. Now, if you don't think that if, if they did that to Jesus, don't you for a minute think they're not going to do that to you? We who don't always do things right. Now, I know we're mostly right. Everybody else is not, but we are. But here's Jesus, who was always right, and they still found something to accuse him of. So don't you think for a minute that if people couldn't find something to accuse Jesus of, they can't find something to accuse you of, right or wrong. It's just, it's just human nature. But Jesus said this, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. There's a difference between being accused for being like Jesus and being accused for being like yourself. <laughs> right? Like when we're being like Jesus, Jesus said, that's okay. 
Peter says, keep a clear conscience for those who speak maliciously against your good behavior um, in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So in Christ, if we are acting Christ-like and in Christ, we will still be accused because even Jesus was. But you know there's even a, a more, a, another place that we can be accused? It's in our own consciences. Our own consciences can accuse us, sometimes correctly, but sometimes falsely. John writes in 1 John, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Some of you are struggling with not the accusation of others, but with your own false self-accusation. Not good enough. God doesn't really like me. If only I did this, or if only I did this, or if only acted a certain way, if I only had this job, if I only had this spouse, if I only had these children, if I only did this, if I only looked like this, if I only had this education or this amount of money or lived, we accuse ourselves. And sometimes our consciences accuse us falsely, and they tell us things that we are not really true. And Satan loves that. Satan loves to tell you that you're an awful parent. Satan loves to tell you that you're an awful spouse. Satan loves to tell you that you are no good for nothing and everything is your fault. What is that? That's our consciences accusing us falsely. And how do we avoid that? Well, John says it's what? It's the truth of God's word again. But Revelation gives us a couple ways for us to triumph. And the first way that we triumph is this. I triumph, listen, by the blood of Jesus. In verse 11, it says, Now salvation and power have come in the kingdom. And what? The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. They triumphed over him by what? The blood of the Lamb. This is the, the Jesus who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. It's the blood of Jesus. Listen, if you are in Jesus, that's your primary identity. I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of God. And I've been born again and I've been renewed in His image. That is your primary identity. It's not as a husband, a wife, a student, a mom, a dad. It's none of that. Your identity is that I am bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus. What can anybody do to me? That's how they overcame. In fact, they even overcame, not even shrinking back from death, the book of Revelation tells us. But I want you to hear this. Revelation 8.1 says this. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So when you are accused, and you are accused, and, and your own conscience or somebody else says, you're not good enough. You say, that's okay, but I'm in Jesus, and he was good enough. You know, you're never going to amount to nothing. That's okay. I'm in Jesus, and he's certainly something. <laughs> nobody, ever love, nobody really loves you. That's okay. I'm in Jesus. There is no condemnation for me. God sees me what? In Jesus. That's by the blood. That's what we overcome by the blood of Jesus. And so when you are in this battle, when you are in this cosmic struggle, what you remind yourself is, I am covered by the blood of Jesus. My sins are forgiven. My future is bright. I have hope for eternity. And I don't care what happens on planet Earth. I know whose I am and where I'm going. That's the blood of Jesus. There's no condemnation. 
and yet in our heads we will condemn and other people will condemn. But listen, you have been reconciled to the God of the universe. Your relationship has been restored. The second thing that Revelation tells us, we triumph by what? The word of Jesus. To the Jews who have believed him, John chapter 8, if you hold on my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know, the lies of Satan are a hook in our life that when we believe those lies, when we believe those accusations, it's a, it's a hook that has us trapped. We're going to talk next week how to be free from the hook. So you need to come back next week. But the lies, it's the truth of Jesus that sets us free from the lie. Satan wants to do what? He wants to accuse, wants to lead us astray, but it's the truth of Jesus. So if Jesus says to us, if his word says that you are loved by the Father, guess what? You are loved by the Father. If the word says you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, guess what? You are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. I'm not going to listen to the accusations of the enemy, the accusations of anybody else, even the accusations of myself. I have to come back to the truth and say, no, I am loved and I am forgiven and I am freed in Jesus. And that's the truth. I may not feel it. (laughs) Isn't it weird in your Christian walk that you have these ups and downs and sometimes you just feel like, I'm forgiven, I can conquer the world, and I'm loved by God. And then you're like, "Ah." listen, don't let your feelings dictate the, the facts of the blood of Jesus and the truth of his word. You are a child of God whether you feel like it or not if you are faithfully trusting in Jesus. Our feelings come and go, but that forgiveness that we have in Jesus is the constant in our life. We ultimately have to deal with this enmity that we have toward God. This dragon, this, this red dragon, what? There's enmity. That's one of the Satan's uh, tactics. He, ha- he has this hatred of all things that are, remind him of God or that show him God. I want to show you a story in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. We talk about people having enmity toward God. In Matthew chapter 2... It's another story of a devouring dragon. And this was one of those attempts that we saw in Revelation 12 of this cosmic curtain being pulled back. Well, here's how this actually lived out in history in one instance in Jesus' life. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Magi came from the east and they wanted to know where the king of the Jews was. So if you are going to the king and you're seeking another king, how do you think the first king is going to take that? (laughs) Not very well. Uh, What do you mean, the king of the Jews? Well, we saw a star, and we want to know where he is coming from. And so when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, so he called the teachers of the law together, and they figured out through this obscure prophecy that it was going to be in Bethlehem. And so they went in Bethlehem, and they stopped, and they worshipped, and they opened, what, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the things that we understand they brought as gifts. But look at verse 12. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So Herod is what? Scheming. Does that sound like anybody? He's deceptive. Does that sound like anybody? And so he's like, hey guys, you go find out where Jesus is, and then would you come back and tell me? Because I'd like to go worship this king too. But the wise men were wise men, even though they kind of stopped and asked for directions. I guess they're pretty wise. That's wise. 
And so here they come. And so in this dream, God's like, no, 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 you need to go back another route. And so when they had gone, an angel said, you need to go and take Jesus to Egypt to get out of the reaches of Herod. What? This devouring dragon. We saw this in Revelation 12. As soon as he was born, what? People were already out to get him. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Sound like anybody? Red dragon, Revelation 12, maybe. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the name or the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Kind of a piece of Christmas we forget about, isn't it? There's conflict, and, and there's this, there's, there is this conflict. But the full teaching of the Bible is that the source of the world's evil is in every human heart. King Herod's reaction to Christ is, in a sense, the reaction of all of us. If you want to be king of your life, and somebody else comes along claiming to be king of your life, what are you going to do? One of you has to give in. We both can't be king. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. And as we know from Christmas, Jesus came to be the absolute king. He's, Jesus, listen, Jesus isn't a half king. He, like, we don't share the throne together. I'm on one side and, and he's on the other side. There's only room for one. It's a one-seater. That's all it is. And it's either Jesus or it's me. But each of us has to deal with the enmity that we all have in our own hearts toward Jesus' claim of kingship over our lives. All of us. We can look at Herod and say, man, what an awful guy. But if if we're honest, we can look at our own self and say, you know, there are times when I didn't really want Jesus around either. He has claimed this uh, property of my heart. In every heart, there is a little King Herod in all of us that wants to rule, and we want to dismiss and get rid of Jesus, the true King. We want to be the captain of our own soul and the, the master of our own fates and just think that I can go through life and, and I, I need, I, I'm smart enough and I, I have it all and I can do it all. And Jesus came to say, no, it's in your weakness and it's in your struggle and it's in your confusion, it's in your doubt that I can do my best work. God can't do something with anybody who has it all together. He just can't. Over and over, what do we see? God opposes the what? The proud. But what does he do? He lifts up the humble. He exalts them. What was Satan's problem? 1 Timothy 3, 6. One of the very few verses in Scripture that tells specifically what the devil's problem was. And this is in the context of church leaders. And and Paul writes to Timothy, he, the church leader, must not be a recent convert. And here's the reason. Or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. It's conceit. It's either I'm going to allow God to call the shots... Or I'm going to call the shots. Either I'm going to be the King Herod of my life and get rid of Jesus, or I'm going to allow Jesus to be the King of my life. You see, there's not only this enmity between Satan and God, but there's also this enmity in us, between between us, our fallenness and our flesh and the things of God. There's There's just this enmity. There's this hostility that that we want to do it our way. Why do little kids cry often? Not because they're wet or because they're hungry. It's because they want things to to go their way. 
they don't get the thing they want. We do that as adults, but we're a little more sophisticated. <laughs> we don't necessarily cry, although sometimes I've seen adults have a pouting match, but we're more sophisticated. We're a little more passive-aggressive, and we're, you know, all the things that we do. Why? Because it's the enmity that we have. I want it my way. And at the end of my life, here's one thing I know I do not want God to say. He had it his way. I want him to say, he is in Christ, and he is mine. He surrendered to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and now he is what? He is mine. You see, the ultimate enmity is the enmity of the human heart against God. Really, our struggle is very similar to Adam and Eve. Maybe you have said this or have thought this. Well, if I was in the garden the world would be a different place, right? Well, if I, right? And, uh, and we see people with bad relationships. Well, if I was that, you know, if I was her husband, she'd be wonderful. No, 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 no. You are overestimating yourself. We all would have eaten. The lure is too much for us to want to be in control of our own lives. That's why we talk about submission. That's why we talk about surrender. That's why we talk about giving our lives to Jesus because Jesus' ultimate claims of authority are ultimate and absolute over our lives. You do a little mental inventory in your life and the ways and the things that I do that I find myself in trouble and I find myself uh, being led astray probably is because I wanted to call the shots and I didn't want God to call the shots. I've said this before, God has a great sense of humor, and it's called marriage. And in marriage, the one spouse will ask the other spouse to do something, and if the other spouse doesn't really want to do it, it's a, it's a test, isn't it, all of a sudden? Because all up to this point, you're like, well, my heart isn't that, there's no enmity in my heart, right? I'm pretty good. But you let your spouse ask you to do something you don't want to do. And I'm not going to say who, but I've actually heard some people lying about to their spouse so they didn't have to do what they wanted to do. She's downstairs. She won't hear. (laughs) Oh, what do we do? I'm so tired. Oh, you know. Why? Because we have enmity. When somebody comes up against us, and so what do we have? We have to recognize we have this. We have this enemy who is, it has enmity with God, and in us is this enmity, which is why we need to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit, why we need to be born again, why we need to have a change from the inside out. That's how we destroy the enmity, and we surrender ourselves to God and say, Lord, you call the shots. But it's hard. It is so hard. And that's where the struggle is in our lives. Even though we are forgiven, even though we can be born again, even though we are purchased by the blood of Jesus. Listen, the struggle never ends. If you are not in a struggle to continue to become more like Christ, you have either given up or you're in denial about where you are. It is a constant struggle. We have joked about this in conversations I've had recently. Sometimes as soon as your feet hit the floor, right, in the morning, it's like, bam, there it is. And for some of us, it's before we even get out of bed. It's like, oh, why? Because there's an enmity of what? In our hearts. Whereas Satan once stood before God to accuse the saints and then tried to devour the Savior. Listen, Satan can no longer accuse you before God. Romans 8.33 says this. 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? You know what the answer is? No one. If you are justified in Jesus, whoever, who can condemn you? And Paul says, no one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Listen, because of Christmas, we have a great power in our lives that when we are accused and when we are trying to be led astray and in our hearts of enmity, what do we have? We have Jesus who takes up residence in our lives through faith. The king who was born in the manger, who came in the flesh, he escaped from this red dragon, went back to heaven. And what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit. So now the Holy Spirit can take up residence in us. And so that we have a fighting chance. We literally do have a fighting chance. We have the spirit in us. We have the blood of Jesus covering us. We have the truth of God's word to guide us and lead us in our lives. In that song, Joy to the World, that one chorus says, no more let sins and sorrows grow. I want to give you a challenge this week. As you hear Christmas songs and hear Christmas carols, I want you to listen for references to this spiritual battle. They're there all over the place, but we just don't normally pick them out. Joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Why would that be? After Genesis 3, the world is now under a curse. Until Jesus comes back and sets it straight, we are living in a world where there are sins and sorrows and thorns infesting the ground. That's where we are. He comes, Jesus, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Wherever the curse is found, Jesus has come, and joy to the world reminds us that Jesus has come, why? His blessings will flow as far as the curse is found. How far is that? Well, if you started today and you started going west and you kept on going until you came back to this spot, that's as far as the curse is found. If you started today and started walking north and went all the way around to come back to this spot, that's as far as the curse is found. It is found everywhere that you can place your foot on planet Earth. It is cursed. But Jesus says, the reason that he came, or 1 John said, the reason the Son of God appeared was what? Was to destroy the devil's work. And so this week, as we think about Christmas, and as we remember Christmas, and as we look at all the great things about Christmas, we need to remember that Jesus came for a purpose, and it was to destroy the devil's work. So the conflict that we're in, and the struggle that we're in, and the battle that we're in, that we have a fighting chance because Jesus came. Don't you feel like you could take on the world now? Like, really? That's Christmas. He has come. And as we surrender our hearts to him and surrender our lives to him. And so what are the blessings of Christ? It's freedom from sin and the accusations of the enemy. Can you do something this week? Can you not accept or will you not accept an accusation of the enemy? When you're accused this week, even if you give somebody a Christmas gift and they're like, ugh. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> you could say, I'm not accepting any accusation because I've received the greatest gift in Jesus and I am his. 
And so you just take your present and go. <laughs> we can do that, right? Because of the accusations that we receive. The, can, can you do something this week? And even in your own mind, when you start to accuse yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not loved enough, I'm not worthy enough, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Can you it, it, take that accusation and say, listen, in Jesus, there's no condemnation. I don't have to receive that. I don't have to receive that. Satan wants to keep us in bondage and keep us struggling and keep us buried under this load of guilt and under this load of shame and under this load of accusation. And Jesus came. Christmas is Jesus breaking into time and space so that we don't have to face the accusation of the enemy. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is all the fun stuff. Christmas is all of that. But it is a Savior who has come in the flesh to do battle with our enemy so that we can have victory over this enemy. It's a gift that's given. We receive it. It's not forced on us. It's not shoved on us. But it's a gift that is given to us. And when I receive that gift and I allow Jesus to take the penalty for my sin in his substitutionary death on the cross, you know what God looks at me and says? no accusation for you. You're free and you're forgiven. And all the blessings of Christ, all those things that you've experienced under the curse, all those blessings of Christ are now in your life. That's the best gift we could ever receive. That's the greatest thing we could ever be reminded of at Christmas. Is that Jesus came in the flesh, what? To do battle with our enemy looking to devour. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know what? I feel like I'm half chewed up. (laughs) You rest in the truth of God's word this morning. Use that sword of the spirit, that's the word of God, and you tell the enemy that's trying to chew you up the truth of who you are. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been led astray and you followed these lies and followed these things and you've gotten into places where you shouldn't have been. There's always forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness and the hope of Jesus. Don't stay there. The enemy wants to keep you where you are. But God loves you too much for you to stay where you are. That's the message of Christmas. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you.